You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Face, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and Snarky Faith is radio for the spiritually disenfranchised. If you've had enough of the insanity of Christianity, you have come to the right place. Here at Snarky Faith, we're all about finding a sane faith grounded in reality and working to make the world a better place in tangible ways. This is not a zone for spiritual escapism, Sunday school answers, or Christianese. We're here to call out religious BS and look for better ways forward. If you can handle your conversations about faith with copious amounts of... Sarcasm. And also a bit of... Then you've come to the right place. Welcome home. So on today's show, we're going to be talking about love. That's right. Love. What is love? That's right. Our episode today is all about love. And this episode is sponsored by men. Hey, men. It's Valentine's Day this Sunday. There. Now you've been reminded. You're welcome. Before we descend into the snark, a few quick bits of housekeeping. This broadcast and all past podcasts can be found at www.snarkyfaith.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, YouTube. We're there and everywhere. Just look for Snarky Faith. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe. And if you're feeling particularly generous, drop a review over on Apple Podcasts too. It helps get the word out to new listeners. And I personally appreciate it. And if you want to interact more with the show, you can find the Snarky Faith page on Facebook. Drop me a line at questions at snarkyfaith.com. And we've even got a snarky hotline if you want to leave a message that will probably end up on the air. The number is 919-525-1570. That's 919-525-1570. Now let's go ahead and hop on into the show. I don't know about you, but these past couple weeks have felt very full. Like there's a lot, a lot, a lot happening. I mean, just last week. Let me just run through a few things because we don't even have time to dive deeply into a lot of this stuff. Last week, Mike Lindell, a.k.a. My Pillow Guy, debuted his feature film about nothingness. Yeah, literally. He released a film trying to debunk everything behind (laughs) the 2020 election. And the bits I watched about it, the bits I saw before it was pulled down (laughs) off of everywhere, was essentially Mike just rambling incoherently without really facts, but telling you it's a fact. And essentially kind of, I think his whole motif was, I'll bring some people, parade a few people around here, but come on. I've got enough equity with you guys. I'm the my pillow guy, for God's sakes. I've got enough equity and credibility with all of you that you should be able to watch me speaking from a desk for two hours, 
rambling. Oh, I love that guy. I love him. I actually really do. I think he's hilarious. I mean, for all the wrong reasons. Don't get me wrong here, but I, I mean, bless his heart. A crack addict who went right by starting a pillow company who fell in love with a president now is going to be sued for billions of dollars because he can't stop lying for his president. Oh, if that's not love, I don't know what is. <laughs> it just got love everywhere. And also, I think it was last week we had the National Prayer Breakfast. And if you love a good documentary, you should realize that it's less about breakfast and prayer and the National Prayer Breakfast and the organization behind it is pretty, pretty darn shady. If you've got some time and you love a good documentary, head on over to Netflix. Look up The Family. It's frightening. And it's all about the guys behind the National Prayer Breakfast. And when I say guys, I mean men. Because, you know, the patriarchy and stuff like that. It just goes hand in hand with American Christianity. Oh! already holding hands. This is the Valentine's-related show. I know, there's a lot of love to, <laughs> not really to go around today, but we'll be talking about love. But before we get to love, we gotta get to some of the craziest of Christianity that we have been through in this past week. One of which, we're gonna start talking here about the Super Bowl. But I'm gonna preface, I'm not even gonna show this one. You can go over to the Snarky Faith Facebook page if you wanna look at this. It's not even really worth looking at it. But literally, there's even conspiracy theories about the weekend's performance during the Super Bowl. Yes. It was apparently him worshiping Satan in front of everyone, and we were all a part of it by watching it. Oh, Satan! Mm. Satan waits around all year to put his entire ad budget into ads at the Super Bowl. He's like every other American corporation. Oh, oh, oh Satan, you got us again. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. Christians want to find the devil everywhere. And apparently, apparently, it's easy to find the devil when we're talking about people of color. <gasps> did I just say that? I did. Oh, and we're not even in the Christian craze yet. I haven't even run the intro music because since I've already gone there, let's go there. If loving the Lord is wrong, I don't want to be right. Lord have mercy. The Lord is my shepherd. He know what I want. Oh, the Christian crazy, the choicest cuts of the Christian nuts. That kind of rhymed, and I'm going to go with it. But we talked last week about how Christians are now starting to use Scripture, I'm not going to say to subtly be racist. They're just being frigging racist. Uh, we talked about it last week a little bit with this whole motif of, of speaking of Kamala Harris as Jezebel. And this week, Scott Lively Mm, Pastor Scott Lively has some deep thoughts on this whole idea about Kamala Harris. Oh, wait, and Barack Obama? He's going to have names he's going to call them? And let's see, the two people he's picking to call out are both people of color here. Hmm. Scott's a white guy. American Christianity is, by and large, become very racist, so <gasps> could this be racism? Yeah, yeah, it pretty much is. What's interesting, and I haven't really done any deep analysis of this, but uh, 
having Kamala Harris. So you haven't done much research, but you're still going to speak from a platform about this. So yeah, good on you. And hey, Scott, next time, if you're going to try to disparage a woman, at least get her damn name right. It's Kamala Harris. Oh, but continue. Please continue to give us your uninformed opinion that you haven't even really thought about that much. Oh, it's going to be fun. Uh, sort of being the heir apparent to the failing Joe Biden. All of the biblical references to the horror of Babylon, right? And, and you know, the, the, the Jezebel that's played such a huge, huge role in uh, the last day's prophecy all sort of rise uh, to the surface, you know? that uh, considering her person, her background, how she got to where she is, not, not hiding it, uh, just the implications of that. The Antichrist is whoever the, the, the demon, Satan, is in possession of at any given time. And I think that, that uh, more than anyone, Obama actually fits the Antichrist model today. I'm not saying that he is for sure, but he more than anyone else that I've ever seen does fit the model. Oh, so Kamala gets a double portion. She's the whore of Babylon and a Jezebel spirit. Oh, no. Oh, what? This is gross and just absolutely positive. It's, it, this, this is just, this is racism in its finest going on here, especially within the Christian church, because we're able to frame it as something. We have a model in Revelation. She fits the model. Obama fits the model, too. It's kind of like an Mad Libs for Christianity. We need a, hmm, black person I don't like, Jezebel spirit, black man I don't like, hmm, Antichrist. That's how it works. That's the biblical model. <laughs> I'm a Really, really glad that Scott Lively doesn't even have a good grip on how to read scripture. But that's not the point. The point is you, sh you throw shade in the Christian sphere using these kinds of names and terminology, and your followers are going to listen it because we've taught a lot of American Christians to be stupid and to only listen to what their pastor or mouthpiece on the platform is telling them. That's the simplicity of all of this. This is just plain stupid. But what more do I expect out of a guy who's the president of Abiding Truth Ministries and anti-gay hate group? <laughs> Man, how is a faith that's supposed to be all about love become all about anti this and anti that and what I don't like and what I hate? <laughs> That's just sad and disgusting. But you know what's also sad and disgusting? Continuing to be a prophet that continues to stand behind what they said about the election. <laughs> what's even more pathetic, and we'll get to pathetic, and its greatest here is Johnny Enloe. Pastor Johnny Enloe here. Johnny, Johnny was, was, the, uh, was the, the great mind behind the national championship, the way the score was displayed on the screen at one time with a four and a five together. And it was like, oh, God is telling us Trump is the president because of a score of a game. Yeah, Johnny's got more, he's got more nothing to spend here in the name of the Lord because apparently I think that's how he makes his money. 
So Johnny, tell us about tell us about the Super Bowl and what God was communicating to us through the Super Bowl. Even though, how can God do that? Because the weekend was worshiping the devil. So what happens here? I don't know, Johnny, but at least God was there because God was with Tom friggin' Brady. <laughs> oh, God loves winners. Here is the key moment. If you want to do a snapshot that really gives the big picture revelation, it is what happened with just under two minutes left in the game. And a player named Devin White, uh, number 45 for the Tampa Bay Bucks, number 45, intercepts in the end zone a pass uh, from the Kansas City Chiefs quarterback. And with that, what takes place immediately, celebration begins. Celebration begins on the sidelines. The coach, at that point, they know. Even they, before the game was technically over. Yeah. And you already knew, everybody knew, whoever, all the observers already knew even before that point that Tampa Bay had won the game sure. because they had a huge lead. It was 31 to 9. But at that point, it, it took out even uh, the possibility of... Uh, of any, you know, there's, that was just it. There's no miracle comeback at that point once number 45. And so I'm going to make right up front a connection with number 45 intercepting, we'll call it intercepting the enemy in the end zone. And that's when the celebration takes place. And I'm going to connect that with... Oh, please connect this for us, Johnny. I have no idea where you're going with this. I have no idea what the end could be. Please, Johnny, tell us, Johnny, Johnny. Our president, number 45. There it is. Donald Trump. The Cyrus 45, Isaiah 45 anointing. And so that's where it ends. That's that's the moment of celebration. Number 45 intercepts the ball in the end zone. Celebration begins. That's how that's when they knew, even if the clock is still going, that's when they knew that they knew that they knew that it was over. Even though you knew it was over already because of the score. 31 to 9. Now, I did the math on that. 31 is 77.5% of the total of 40 points. Get out your calculators, boys and girls. This is the math portion of the prophecy. So he had already, Tom Brady had led them. They had 77.5% of the points, but yet they couldn't celebrate until number 45 intercepted in the end zone. <laughs> Do I have to explain that one uh, uh, to you, how that has, to, that has to happen? And that very likely could be anywhere from the exact uh, number of votes that once the proof is presented before the American people, that concealed thing uh, that's not concealed by God, but by the enemy trying to steal, kill, and destroy, we will, we will find that out. So truly, uh, this game is just, as you see, jam-packed with revelation on the reality of where we are, where we've been, where we're going. Where are we going? Um, what's happens this week? Impeachment. So that kind of seems a little counterintuitive towards the celebrating the end of the game. I, this is, this is madness. And th th what I actually see happening here is this is just really sad and pathetic where we're able to see people grasping at straws, looking for things that aren't even there. See, this is what happens. This is why people believe in all sorts of conspiracy type theories because somehow that is easier for them to believe than reality.
Reality happens, and so instead, God is using a player in a game to be able to show Pastor Johnny really what's going down. I mean, it's like a Re book of Revelation part two. I mean, really. Oh my God, wait. The Apostle John wrote Revelation, and we're also talking about Johnny Enlow. Oh! <laughs> that doesn't mean anything at all. Just because I made random connections doesn't mean anything at all. I mean, you're just, you're just Kevin Baconing things right now. That's all you're doing. This isn't revelation. This isn't prophecy happening here. No, it's none of that. It's none of that. This is just a sad, sad, sad person trying to cling in desperation to his deep love of an orange man. I mean, it's almost like we need to recommend Johnny Enlow for Scott Lively's ministry because it's anti-gay. That was the sad joke here. And in actuality, Scott Lively and Johnny Enlow are the only sad jokes abounding. Not the only. They're the only ones so far. Want more sad jokes? <laughs> you came to the right place. It's almost like it's crazy Halloween and daddy's got a lot of candy for you, kitties. <laughs> There's more Kristen crazy. Now, when we refer to crazy in the Kristen crazy, this name would be synonymous with crazy, but not necessarily the, the Christian crazy. And, and that name is, is Alexander Jones of Information Wars, or Alex Jones of Infowars. And, and I had been asked this, I'd been asked this recently by someone, and I, I think I took a lot longer to explain what it meant than I should have. Because oftentimes when people ask me like questions and how to define stuff, I like my brain goes into five different directions. And someone recently had asked me like, well, how do you define Christian nationalism? You want to know the best way to define Christian nationalism? Uh, let's listen to Alex Jones at a rally that was going on back in December because this is a beautiful picture, a beautiful audible picture for your ears to understand fully what is it that Christian nationalism smells and tastes like? It tastes like the sweat on Alex Jones. What does it sound like? Oh. It'll sound like white privilege sprinkled with sad desperation. Yeah! Praise God, America is awakening! Humanity is awakening! And Jesus Christ is King! Not David Rockefeller, not Bill Gates, not Barack Obama, not Joe Biden, but Jesus Christ is King! And God gave us and rose up Donald Trump to stand against the enemy and draw out the enemy. So as dark as some of these days are, understand, this is the beginning of the great revival before the Antichrist comes. I love how somehow mentioning the Antichrist gets the crowd going. This is going to be the period before the end of everything and the Antichrist. Woo! Yeah! <laughs> what is that even? What is that? That's totally... Okay, so that is Christian nationalism. Jesus is going to come and kick ass, take names, and we have the proper answers, and you guys are the devil, and you're bad, and we're good because God's with us. Good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. Okay. Okay, so we got that. We got that, right? Um, but, hey, many of you out there may be saying, but 
This sounds kind of like violent rhetoric. This sounds like rhetoric that could lead towards a riot or an insurrection. Who knows? It sounds like he's inciting crazy people. But remember, dear listener, these are Christians. They also cheered for the name of Jesus, and they booed against the name of Obama. So we know they're good Christians, because Christians do not protest. No, 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 we don't protest. We don't go on sieges of government buildings. That's not what Christians do. It's not. Come on. Back me up there, Jim Baker. But what will be the effect of what has happened in the Capitol building? What, what, what's the long-term effect? That I still don't understand all of that because I, Christians don't burn buildings down. Christians don't riot. They just don't. Mm-hmm. The, right. I'm talking about born-again Christians, yeah. biblical, biblical Christians. I mean, you heard it there that, like, born-again biblical Christians don't do that kind of stuff. And, like, Jim's like, I, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Those can't be Christians. Christians don't do that stuff. Because when you're born again, you are changed from the inside, and you are no longer able to make bad decisions, vote wrong, sin, storm the government. Because we all know that good Christians wouldn't, like, endorse things like hate and slavery in the past. Uh, Christians wouldn't get involved in things like, I don't know, mm, crusades. You know, Jim's right here. That wouldn't happen. But in case you wanted a second opinion, I want to talk to Jim Baker from 2017. Let's talk to 2017 Jim Baker, because that Jim Baker has a bit of a different opinion. Hmm. Let's see if the two gyms can meet in the middle. Hypocrisy doesn't work that way, folks. That's what we're doing here. They're not going to meet in the middle. That's not how it works. Okay, Jim? Kim Clement, before he died, he prophesied they will be screaming impeachment, impeachment, but it will not happen. That's true. Kim Clement prophesied. Well, I'll tell you what. I will predict if it happens, there will be a civil war in the United States of America. The Christians will finally come out of the shadows because we we are going to be shut up permanently if we're not careful. And God says faith without works is dead. That's right. We have to do things. God has been dealing with me, and I don't know about you. Yes. It's time for preachers like you, you're doing it, to stand up yes. and shout out. Yeah. That's the gym we know and love. Woohoo! We got him. He's back here, right? Civil War gym. Um, so, ex- what? So the prophecy that you were talking about three years ago that said there won't be impeachment, but there was there was two. Imp- oh, maybe that's what it was. God was prophesying like, oh, there's not going to be just one impeachment. <laughs> and they were like, oh, there's going to be no impeachment. But God was just like, hmm, you think there's only one? But I've got two. In scripture, we call that a double portion or a double blessing. Oh, God does love the orange Messiah doubly, doubly. Not one impeachment for you, but two, sir. Two, sir. Enjoy it. You've earned it. So I know up until this point, yes, 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 we're in a segment called The Christian Crazy. So these are really terrible examples of Christianity, the news today. But but I wanted to bring up the last part today to really kind of cleanse our palate because we all forget 
oftentimes what Christianity is about. I mean, it's really easy for us to say, hey, you know, it's about like Jesus and helping the world and kind of unleashing God's kingdom of hopefully love and forgiveness, compassion and grace onto the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah we can get up, we can, you know, get into all that kind of like lovey-dovey stuff here. But not Andrew Womack. No. Andrew sees his faith as incredibly practical. Like, incredibly practical. And if you want to hear how faith absolutely doesn't work, let's hear what Andrew Womack has to say about this, because it is... Mm, I'll let you be the judge. I'll let you be the judge of this. You know, real quickly, we need to take questions, but real quickly, when my wife and I first got married, we were poor and we lived in a house that wasn't insulated. And so we had a gas heater on the inside to keep the place warm, but because there was no insulation, the walls swept. And in the uh, closets, especially where it was dark and stuff like this, we just had mildew everywhere. And you know what I did? Instead of taking something and cleaning it off and repainting or something, I took Deuteronomy chapter 28 and read it. Mildew, you are a curse. Then I turned over to Galatians 3.13. I'm redeemed from you. And I spoke to mildew and cursed it. And did you know it went away without me having to clean it and do something? It was a curse. And I rebuked the curse. And I got free from that. Oh, if, if only faith did work that way. I would have loved it when I was a young father to be like, oh, why does my child's diaper smell? <laughs> that smells like hell. It smells like Satan. I need to bind and rebuke that diaper to make it clean again. I bind and rebuke against you, diaper. Poo, get out. That's all I needed to do. That's really, like, apparently our faith is really about trying to make our lives so much easier. <laughs> Look at this. It's incredible. I mean, honestly, we need to have some sort of a salesman, some sort of a guy that's, oh, we needed Mike Lindell. And then we went and canceled him or he just canceled himself from his own mouth and consequences. Oh, dang it. <clears throat> we need more Lindell is a phrase that no one has ever said out loud. What can I say? He's my pillow guy. So as we transition over to our main story that we're going to be talking about today, uh, we're going to be talking a lot about love. That's right, love. But before I talk about that, just one little shout out for next week's show. Uh, and I think you're going to find this very interesting. I'm talking with Rocky Roggio, who is the director of the upcoming film, 1946. So if you want to get a jump start on next week's show, check out 1946themovie.com. That's all I'll say right now. So now back to our main question of the hour that we're going to be hopping into. The question is, What is love? It's a question that's plagued anyone from philosophers to middle school girls to theologians to these guys. You really want to know what love is? Yeah. Yes, tell us. More than anything in the world, Ron. Well... It's really quite simple. It's kind of like... Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight, gonna grab some afternoon delight. Excellent. We don't even need to talk about this anymore. It's all been solved. No, I'm joking. Now, I bring this topic up not because... Well, fine. Okay, I'll tell you why I'm bringing this topic up. Here's what happened. 
Okay, so I have I have a group of of guys that we hang out every two weeks virtually online and talk about a book uh, that we are going through. So we are theologically inclined human beings that like to have discussions. And I, at the moment, am the scheduler and I run the group. And I kind of got made fun of and I was a little hurt about it. I'm not really hurt about it at all. <laughs> but I'll just let you in on connecting all of this. Um, and I noticed that I had scheduled our, our group to meet uh, on Super Bowl Sunday. And so I sent out, and we meet on Sunday evenings. And so I sent out a, a, a message to all, the, all my guys. And I'm like, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's Super Bowl Sunday. We need to, we need to move this to next week. Um, and that'd be cool. Can we move it to next week? And they all got after me going, Stuart, uh, Super Bowl Sunday is on February the 7th. What is the following week? February the 14th. Valentine's Day. Now, yes, you could often say, which is why they're ridiculing me, I must be the worst husband in the world because I don't pay attention to when is Valentine's Day? And that would actually be fairly true. And as one of them told me uh, <laughs> a private message in the way that we speak to one another, that uh, you're abandoning the Lord for football? You're abandoning your wife too? So that's the kind of friends I have. I'll go ahead and admit this. With my wife and I, we really don't pay attention to Valentine's Day. And now before I get the hate mail in here, I'll just go ahead and explain how we work. Uh, every day is Valentine's Day if you're married to me. Boom! That's how it happens. That's how you live life, sucker! No, no, no. <laughs> my wife and I, we don't need a greeting card holiday to be able to display our love once a year so we literally try to date and continue to date all year round so our love stays in the words of ron burgundy an afternoon delight but i don't actually talk about love today because of valentine's day it happens to work its way out but i talk about love today because i feel like that is it's one of the words within christianity that we use a lot uh that is used over and over it's part of christian language but I honestly think in many ways we've forgotten what it means. What are we talking about? I mean, seriously, there was, there was, this was, oh my gosh, it was at the beginning of February. And there was a news report from, it was a private Christian school in Oklahoma, expelled a second grader and cut ties with her family. Why did they expel the second grader? Because she told her friend, that she had a crush on her. That was it. That was it. The parents were told, come pick up your kid. Your kid's out of our Christian school. Because a second grader said they had a crush on another second grader of the same gender. Christianity doesn't know what love means anymore because this, 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 that, that, that in itself that Christian school has no idea why it exists. I will tell you, in that one moment, it has no idea why it exists. Unless it exists really just to make money and to make Christian parents feel good about insulating their kids from the world, then if that's what Christianity is, great. They are doing a top-notch job making a bunch of xenophobic little bastards in their own image. Fine. Awesome. But if we really want to be able to talk deeper about love, deeper about what all of this means, I, I think that we need to dig into this. We really need to dig deeper into what is love. And actually, the bigger question I'm going to have is, or is 
It's more about what does love look like? I feel like in our culture, oftentimes we get caught up in the feelings of love. We get caught up in like the infatuation, the butterflies, and all those tingly feelings we have when we're around the one that we love. Or, or maybe, maybe this one may make you uncomfortable. Oh, how good I feel when I worship the Lord in church as long as the songs I'm singing to him are the ones I like, as long as I like how the worship band sounds, because really, in a lot of American Christianity, worship is all about myself. So I feel like Christianity love has become this this inner thing. God loves me. God saves me. Because I will tell you, as as a pastor and someone that's worked on staff as at a church, the countless times I have heard people saying like, mm, I just didn't feel it in the worship this morning. I just didn't feel it. Because worship is not about you feeling it. The idea of worship would be the idea that, oh, I love God and I want to sing because of my happiness. Yeah. Worship is wonky and messed up in the Christian church. And that's a whole different topic for a whole different show because because again, we're going to get back into this. Uh, love is an action word. Love is shown through actions. And also really the same thing with worship. Worship is an active word. Worship isn't you singing. Worship is like what you're doing. You, you live out your worship. And, and a scripture that, that I continue to, especially like we're, we're in Valentine's week, um, would be like Ephesians 5, 25 to 26. We've heard it spoken so many times if you've been in and around churches. It goes like this. Husbands, love your wife, just as, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word. Now, let's forget uh, the, the, the patriarchal language that we're using here, but if you, if you really do look at this, it, it, it is, is in a committed relationship, regardless of who you are, we are called to love the one that we are in a relationship with, whether it be through marriage, uh, a relationship, or friends, or those around us. I, I feel like this, this still applies. I feel like that we're called to love others just like Christ loved the church. And I know we use the scripture so often to, to talk about marriage in the Bible, but I, I feel like this is giving us a paradigm that really fits in line with the paradigm of Jesus's ways, Jesus's words, Jesus's actions, all that happened. This idea that love is, is sacrificial, that to love means I give of myself to you in some way. Love isn't how I feel. I feel love. Um, or I love a taco, which I do. I love a good taco. But as we hop into this, so I, I want to do just a little bit, a little bit of biblical work for us here. Not too much homework, not too much homework. We're, we're, we're going to hop in and talk about the different meanings of the word love. Now, in order for us to do that, I'm going to start in an odd place. Um, I want to be able to start in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy. Because usually when you think of love, you think of Deuteronomy. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, but why I, I start here? I want to start with, with one of the central themes and ideas of Judaism and and it should be one of the central ideas of, of Christianity. We're going to start with the Shema, which is the Jewish 
Uh, it's, it's really their centerpiece of how they view prayer. It's kind of the morning and, and evening prayer that they begin to kind of focus and cover themselves in this. And, and the Shema, it's, it's very simple. You've, you've heard this before. This is Deuteronomy 6, 45. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is one. As for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So for those uh, from, from a Jewish faith, these are kind of the marching orders of, of how we are to approach God. We're approaching God through this lens of love, through this lens of love when we see this one, okay? So if we are beginning, let's talk through some love, uh, Hebrew style. Let's talk through Hebrew style love, really just Hebrew words. Because we're going to have two different sets of words that we're going to be playing around with just for you to understand the scope of what we're going for here with love. So in the Hebrew language, we have the word Ahava. Um, that is one of the main words that we're going to see used to talk about love. Now, that love could be many things. Uh, it could be physical love. It could be the love of a child. It could be friendship and brotherly love. It could be like loyalty. Ahava can be a lot of different things. But, but ultimately, what, what, it, what it, it speaks to, it, it speaks to the nature of God. Not just that we're called to love God, but we also know from like Deuteronomy 7, uh, 7 through 8, that God loves you. And God loves you, any of you, not, not Christians or Jews. God loves people because that is, that, that is the core nature of what, or what and who God is. Love. That love is a defining characteristic of it. Now, I bring this up because oftentimes... In culture today, I, I, I do not think that when people think of, hmm, Christians, those are the most loving people I've been around. They're so sacrificial. Oh, my goodness. They're so nice. They're so kind. They're so giving. They're so loving and graceful and compassionate. Is not any of what we hear today. Is not, it's none of it. It's none of it. It's none of it. It's none of it. But, but when we look at this, when we look at this, the God of the Ahava, this God of love, love that is action, love that is seen through sacrifice. And, 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 and if we see that God is the God of love, then our imitation of God is to love God the best we know how, but we love God how? By loving others around us. That, that, that's, that's kind of how it works. It's, it's a very fluid system. I, I know that oftentimes with, with different theology and different religions, we've made lots of rules around stuff. But this thing, this idea of love, I feel like it's bigger than theology and it's bigger than rules. Because love is something that, that is, it's, it's not just a thing. It's not just an action. It's also kind of a posture of openness and how we are willing to embark upon having relationships with those around us. Now, ahava can be something that's a bit deeper. It can kind of be the type of love, but it can also be something that uh, it shows us what it means to be loyal, what it means to be a person that is there for you. Not loyal in the way that we're seeing like Republicans and Democrats today being loyal. No, no, loyal like I am here for you, the person I am here for you because I believe in you and I think, I, and I, I hope the best for you. I am here because I care for you, because I love for you. So in the Old Testament, we're going to have like kind of two different terms thrown around, like ahava 
And then there is going to be another one. It's going to be hesed. Sorry, that's not right. Hesed. Hesed. There we go. And that type of love is, is soaked in grace, benevolence, compassion. So either way, we're, we're, getting this, we're getting this very encompassing view of love in the Old Testament. Uh, whether it be ahava or whether it be chesed, these are both, these are both a posture of love, of grace, of commitment, of, of care, of compassion, of empathy, all of those. And, and, and the writers across the board in the Old Testament continue to go back to stuff. And there's many different writers over many different periods of time. We come back to this, this idea. And I know many of them, I feel like oftentimes get it wrong, will be God is rageful, God is angry, God is this. But, but I feel like the consensus that we come back to in the Old Testament is that God is love. And I think that is a hard, hard concept for us to wrap our heads around. Because if God is love, that means he loves our enemies. I know God calls us to love our enemies, but we have to think about this. So God loves our enemies. God loves the people that we think are deplorable. That God loves all the people in the Christian crazy just as much as he loves me. Yeah, and that probably works out because I'm fairly deplorable from time to time. Then we dance over and move towards the New Testament, where we're going to get more into Greek terminology here, uh, where we talk about the different forms of love based upon the Greek language. So we have eros, which is what we would say romantic love. There, there we see as we've moved in history now, the Greeks are defining it and, and categorizing it differently, whereas I feel like uh, the Hebrew left it a lot wider open. Then we have, so eros, romantic love. Storge is familial love, a love between family members. Not like, not like a, a Donald and Ivanka type of love. That's like creepy, but like the love of a child, the love of a parent, that, that kind of a love, a familial type of love. We also have philia, which is more of a friendship type brotherly love, um, but also is kind of like how we love our, our neighbor, uh, how we love our community, and that kind of philia. Have you ever heard of Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love? Mm, philia. And then lastly, we, we, we center down on this idea of agape. And agape is, is this, this self-sacrificial type of love. Uh, we see this oftentimes like in the New Testament talking about uh, something like a deeper love. A, a love that is selfless, that is unconditional, that uh, is sacrificial. So, so in, in, in the Greek mind, especially like when we look in the Bible, this, this, this is the height of love. So in many ways, I kind of feel like we have <laughs> ahava in the Old Testament, which is, which is kind of a high in, incorporating view of love. And then we have agape in the New Testament, the way we kind of, we, we put this larger arc over us. We have agape and these other versions uh, informing us how we are called to love. Now, when we look at these, when we look at these, at, these, at these different words, we should end up seeing, even though a lot of these words have, have different meanings behind them, they have, they have different roots where they come from, but the consistent factor that we see here is our posture towards others. 
Uh, it was, I believe it was on last week's show, I quoted Michael Tanner, who had uh, spoke of, we were talking about charity. Um, he said, what's translated as charity in the Bible is agape, which literally means love. We do have a responsibility to help the poor and those in need, and that means taking care of them yourself, giving money yourself, giving your time, your efforts, not someone else's. And then let us step further back in time to listen to the words of Julian of Norwich, who describes God in these terms. God showed me in my palm a little thing, round as a ball, around the size of a hazelnut. I looked at it with the eye of my understanding and asked myself, what is this thing? And I was answered, it is everything that is created. I wondered how it could survive since it seemed so little and could suddenly disintegrate into nothing. The answer came, it endures and ever will endure because God loves it. And so everything has being because of God. So in one light, Julian of Norwich is getting to this point of saying is that God loves the smallest thing, the size of a hazelnut that he can make creation through. He can create new things through tiny things. And if God loves this, certainly, certainly lo God loves all of his creation, which would encapsulate all of us. And Norwich also said this, God is thirsty for everyone. This thirst has already drawn the holy to joy. And we, the living, are ever being drawn and drunk. And yet God still thirsts and longs. So in two ways for us to really be able to understand the deep nature of God. One, God creates out of love. And God desires to love us. And we've said this before, and, and you've, you've probably heard this said a, a thousand times, but this idea that love equals action. Love isn't a mere emotion. It isn't mere feeling. Because for something to be created into reality, in many ways, it needs to be seen. I can tell my children I love them, but unless they see me acting in a loving manner to them, my words are meaningless. I can profess my love day in and day out to my wife. Oh, I'm so committed to you. I love you, honey. I love all of this about you. But if I only care about myself, my actions will speak loudly to that. Now, when it comes to Christianity, we know this. We know this, that love is a central thing, a central theme to all of it. You get rid of the love, you get rid of Christianity. It doesn't work any other way. We see this through Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus gives us very, very simple commands. That, that these commands that, that, that continue to, to echo the, the Shema, the, the idea to that love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. And then Jesus adds, love your neighbor as yourself. So the heart, the heartbeat, the theme, the core of anything having to do with Christianity has to be love. Now, too often we've heard like, oh, oh, well, you love the sinner, hate the sin. Or I spoke truth to them in love. Did that truth feel like love to them? Or did it kind of feel like 
you disapproving of them or even on worst cases, almost like verbally raping who that person was. Because Christianity has learned how to be very unloving, how to be very ungraceful, how to be very unkind. And I think, I think this is why. Because we make Christianity about ourselves. I know in many ways, I know in many ways, the way that, that, that the faith has kind of evolved or created its own structures and created its own theology and practice, it could seem like Christianity is all about like worshiping God. Like God, this God that's supposed to be alive and active in the world today, somehow just sits back and needs our worship. And when we've done that, we've made Christianity something that's very inert. Meaning I can show up on a Sunday, I can pray and worship, and I feel like I'm good. But actually, we've taught people kind of the opposite of Christianity. Christianity is not about feelings. It, it's, it's not about, like, having those warm and fuzzy things. It's not about, like, oh, God loves me. He's there for me. No. No, really, like, most of the core of, of, the, gospels, of the gospels are action. So if, if you have heard the gospel message of Jesus, if you've read the gospel message of Jesus and it has not led you to action, then you're doing it wrong. That Christian school that I mentioned earlier in the show, doing it wrong. People that are praying away the mildew on their house, doing it wrong. If your faith is worth anything, it needs to almost look like the dirt underneath your fingernails when you've been working hard. It's the sweat on your brow. It's you showing up for someone even though they didn't ask for it. It's you reaching out and helping someone that you think may need help. It's you checking in on people. It's you forgiving people. It's you being graceful because life's a lot more complicated than the things we can see on the surface. And if Christianity is ever going to be worth anything anymore, and in America, it's, it's, it's kind of a sad state as we've seen like the church slowly dying, but I, I'm actually really hopeful because I feel like the institution is dying, but the words and the heart remain. And those words and that heart continues to point us back to action. But on Valentine's Day, on these days where we end up kind of feeling forced to show displays of love, I can say that I'm confident that my wife knows that I love her. Partially because I asked her at a time that I was correct in all the things that I'm saying here on the show. <laughs> but, but she knows I love her because of the affection I show her. But she also knows I love her because I show up. Because I'm there for the dirtiness of life or the, the muck and the cleaning up stuff of life, the kids barfing stuff of life, the dogs pooping on the carpet stuff of life, the something breaks in the middle of night stuff of life, where I'm there to help. But there's also those times where someone can't sleep and we wake up to talk to them, where they need time and we give them time. Because... Here's what I'm going to say. If people can't learn to love others around them, on, on the most basic level, we can't love our neighbors. We're not going to love our wives well, or our husbands, or our spouses, or whoever we're, you know, our partners. We're never going to love them well. 
if I can't love my friends well, how can I expe expect to, to love someone on a deeper, encompassing level? Because love requires action. And this is also the month. Um, we're, also, we're in a month of Valentine's, but we're also still in Black History Month. And, and I'd actually, I'd read this article, and I feel like it fits. I feel like this fits in a certain way. And this is, it's from Esau Macaulay from Christianity Today. Um, and Esau is a professor um, of New Testament at Wheaton College. And he was writing an article, it's titled this, uh, It's Not Enough to Preach Radical Justice. We Need to Champion Policy Change. And so he's reading this from a perspective of being a young black man growing up in the South and being able to watch Martin Luther King. He says this, For a black boy growing up in Alabama trying to make sense of himself in a hostile world, Martin Luther King Jr. was my hero. Alongside a startlingly pale Jesus, a picture of Martin hung beside the photographs of my family. I knew Martin by sight. I could recognize the tenor of his voice. The mental architecture of my young black imagination was formed by grainy videos of mass church meetings and marches and by the hymns and spirituals that threatened to shake the United States to its foundations. I knew about Selma, Birmingham, Montgomery before I could find them on a map of my state. I do not remember not remembering Martin. By contrast, the king that I see online on Martin Luther King Day is a stranger to me. This beloved figure is, is a part of the construction of a society that never fully loved him or the cause he represented. King died an unpopular man. In 1968, years after, years, uh, the year of his death, 75% of Americans disapproved of his views and activities. That was up from 50% in 1963. Today, his approval rating nears 90%. And some might suggest with, uh, that with hindsight, Americans have come to appreciate King in a way that was impossible during a racist era in which he lived. But things are not that simple. If social media is any indication, a large portion of America still hasn't wrestled with King of 1968. He continues on in the article saying this, King was never popular. But what exactly led to his drop in popularity as the 60s wore on? Two main reasons. He continued to be a truth teller about racism, and he focused on economic enfranchisement of black Americans. With both, he pushed past big, easy-to-like notions of justice to advocate instead for particular chains and particular policies. And the article closes by saying this, King didn't see his economic advocacy as a move towards partisanship. He saw it as the most Christian of activities, a manifestation of love of his neighbor. His truth-telling was not merely venting of frustrations. He was doing work similar to the biblical prophets of old. He was holding up a mirror to American culture so that it could see what it had become in light of God's vision for a just society. When we pretend that we can live above the fray and not get into the rough, and tumble of people's lived experiences, we are becoming less Christian. We are squandering our chance to be the witnesses to what is possible. And as I close this show, I ask you, do you love enough to live sacrificially? Are you bold enough to see where it takes you? Because that is the glory. That is the glory of what God is painting here through Jesus is that we don't know where it's going to take us. 
but it's going to take us into places that we can't imagine because we are called to love. We are called to give and we are called to be change agents in the world around us. Thank you so much for listening this hour. I send you out with the holiest amount of grace and snark and peace. Go love well, go live well, and I hope that you will be well. I'm out of here. Peace.